Well, if you had a friend who was recently saved and that friend was to ask you, hey, what is the most important qualities of a church? What should I look for in a church? How would you answer that friend? What kind of qualities would you come up with? What kind of church would you recommend? Those are some questions I asked our high school ministry just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, can I just say I was very pleased with the responses they came up with. Um, Here's what they didn't say. They didn't say the most important quality of a church is that it has to have a really cool coffee shop with a really trendy name like Holy Mocha or Jehovah Java or uh, Hollowed Grounds. Um, They didn't say the most important quality of a church is that it has to have some sort of special effect system that produces all sorts of flashy lights or smoke that, you know, when the music team ascends to the stage or the pastor ascends to the pulpit. They didn't say it has to have trendy music or lively entertainment or some form of comedy or drama mixed within the corporate gathering. Instead, they responded with statements regarding the importance of the Word of God and the importance of serving one another in the body of Christ, the importance of evangelism, that is, seeing opportunities for ministry outside of these four walls, answers similar to those. A few weeks ago, I happened to grab a book off my bookshelf titled, Stop Dating the Church. You ever heard of that before? Um, I think it's relabeled now or, or retitled, Why Church Matters. But anyways, in that book, Josh Harris Uh, came up with a list of 10 questions one ought to use as a grid in finding the right church. Sort of 10 criteria. And and these criteria, he wasn't saying these, uh, you need to be perfect in the church that you're looking to, you know, looking to attend. No, these are some things that a healthy church strives for. 10 things, 10 criteria. Number one, is this a church where God's word is faithfully taught? Number two, is this a church where sound doctrine matters. In other words, they don't just have a doctrinal statement, but, but, but their theology matters to them. It, their, their doctrine bleeds out into their worship time. Number three, is this a church in which the gospel is cherished and clearly proclaimed? Number four, is this a church committed to reaching non-Christians with the gospel? In other words, do they have an, an evangelistic focus, an evangelistic mindset? Number five, is this a church where leaders are characterized by humility and integrity. Number six, is this a church where people strive to live by the word of God? Not just know it intellectually, but strive to live by it. Number seven, is this a church where I can find and cultivate godly relationships? Number eight, is this a church where members are challenged to serve, not just attend, but to be involved in ministry? Number nine, is this a church that's willing to kick me out? That's an interesting one. In other words, is it a church that takes sin seriously and loves you enough to not let sin go unaddressed? And number 10, is this a church I'm willing to join as is with enthusiasm and faith in God? Well, for any Christian looking to find the right kind of church, that's a really helpful list, isn't it? And notice, if you will, the number one issue at the top of the list was the word of God. Is it a church where the word of God is faithfully preached? Is it a church where the word of God is faithfully proclaimed? You know, I think Josh Harris had it right by putting that issue at the top of his list. You say, why is that? Because the fact is, God sees that priority at the top of his list as well. To see what I mean, open your Bibles and meet me at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 
And as you're turning there, let me remind you that this was Paul's final letter before his death. We know from 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul experienced numerous imprisonments over the course of his life and ministry due to, of course, his commitment to preaching the gospel, due to, of course, his commitment to ministering to people, ministering the word to, to, to various people in various locations. But this was his last one. This was his final letter and final imprisonment. And as his life was beginning to wind down, the person Paul sought to reach out to one last time was a young man he invested so much of his life into. This was an individual that Paul picked up on his second missionary journey as recorded in the book of Acts, which began a ministry partnership that lasted an entire lifetime. This is a young man who Paul spoke of in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, when he said, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. The individual that Paul spoke to, or that, that, that the recipient of this letter, rather, the, the one in which Paul directed this letter to, was a young man by the name of Timothy. Paul's young son in the faith, Timothy. And in the final chapter of his final letter, Paul says to Timothy in verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. You know, as you read through 2 Timothy, you find that Paul and Timothy experienced a lot of the same circumstances in life and ministry. For example, both men experienced a great deal of hardship and resistance as a result of preaching the gospel. Both men experienced the normal challenges that go along with working with people and shepherding people, ministering to people. Both men also experienced opposition from false teachers who were only in ministry for personal gain, only in ministry for what they could get out of it rather than how they can serve others and serve the Lord. And so as you look at the two men, there are really a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities as far as the circumstances each man faced. But there were also some differences. You see, when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison while Timothy was free. When Paul wrote this letter, he was awaiting his death while Timothy was still in the prime of his life. When Paul wrote this letter, he was at the very end of his ministry while Timothy was still just sort of getting things started. The question that comes to mind this morning is this. What advice did Paul have for Timothy in this particular season of Timothy's life? What advice did Paul have for Timothy at this particular juncture in Timothy's ministry? 
And the answer is found right here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Really the whole book, the entire book of 2 Timothy is an instruction manual on how to do ministry well. But here in chapter 4, Paul sort of zeroes in and lays out what are seven keys to a faithful ministry. Seven keys to a faithful ministry. And you see that on your outline. Now, before we look at these individually, let me first say this. This, The issues that Paul discusses in this section were in a lot of ways specific to Timothy's ministry as a pastor. However, and a big however, we need to keep in mind that the reason Paul wanted these qualities to be true of Timothy is because he was to model these things for the rest of the body. Does that make sense? So let's not just pass this off as just for pastors or just pass this off as just for ministry leaders or for shepherds. It is true that this particular passage is very instructive for pastors, very instructive for shepherds, for ministry leaders and so forth. But again, the reason the Lord wants these qualities to be true of his leaders is because they were to turn around and reflect these and exemplify these qualities to the rest of the body at large. And so with all that in mind, let's begin by looking at verse 1. Paul writes in verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Let's stop here for a moment. The first key to a faithful ministry, if you look on your outline, involves recalling your accountability, to recall your accountability, to remember your accountability. Listen, Paul wanted Timothy to know that his ministry and service was always visible to God and that his accountability didn't ultimately come from the people he was ministering to, but from the Lord in whose presence he was serving. Sure, Timothy ministered to people. Sure, he served as a pastor to people. But at the end of the day, Their evaluation of him wasn't the issue that mattered most. It was the Lord's. It was God's. As one commentator put it, quote, a preacher's ultimate accountability is not to a board, a local church, a denomination, or any other human institution, no matter how doctrinally sound and godly it may be, but rather it's to the Lord who has called and empowered him and who one day will judge him. You know, that's exactly the issue that Paul's addressing here right here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's basically telling Timothy, Timothy, listen, as you minister to people, don't forget that your greatest accountability comes from the one who is always watching you and the one who is always before you and the one who will one day judge you on the basis of your character and faithfulness in serving him. You know, I'm sure by Paul invoking the presence of God here in the beginning of this chapter, I'm sure it brought an extra level of encouragement an extra level of accountability to Timothy's ministry. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, just think about your own life for a minute. Have you ever been in a position before where someone in authority was watching you closely and paying careful attention to what you were doing? For example, if you're an athlete, have you ever gone through a specific drill in which the coach had his eyes fixed on you? Or maybe as a student, do you ever recall a moment in the classroom where your teacher or your professor watched you closely, maybe sitting at the desk and had his or her eyes fixed on you as you were doing an assignment? Or maybe at a job, do you ever recall being in a position where you were doing a particular task and the boss was watching you with a close eye? Listen, all of us have had experiences like that in our lives. Therefore, all of us can testify that whenever we've been in those types of situations in life, 
it brings an extra level of accountability. It's not necessarily a negative thing. It's a, it's a positive pressure to do what we're doing with absolute excellence, to do what we're doing to the very best of our ability. And I believe that that's what Paul was doing here when he reminded Timothy of his divine accountability. He was seeking to motivate him to spiritual excellence. He was seeking to motivate him to do the very best that he possibly could. And what not a better way to do that than to remind Timothy of the very presence of God. I mean, Paul told Timothy, Timothy, listen, as you're carrying out ministry, don't forget about the Lord. There's a sense in which people aside, you're serving an audience of one. And can you think of a better motivation to serve the Lord with excellence than to be reminded that God is present at all times and he knows? Can you think of a better motivation of spiritual excellence than to be reminded that God is always before us, evaluating our hearts, evaluating our motives, evaluating how much effort we're willing to give, what kind of sacrifices we're willing to make, what kind of distance we're willing to go, the costs we're willing to pay in order to serve him in ministry? You see, when it comes to our spiritual service to the Lord, the issue that matters most at the end of the day is this. Did we do what we did as unto the Lord? And did we give our best for his glory and not our own? Faithfulness in ministry starts with a mindset that God is always present before us. And at the end of the day, his opinion of our lives is what matters most. And so you can see why Paul started out this direction, didn't you? Or can't you see that? In 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, listen, Timothy, as you carry out your ministry, don't forget about the Lord. Don't forget about the one in whose presence you are serving. Don't forget about the one who ultimately you will give an account of your life and ministry to one day in the future. And so Paul says in verse one, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. That's the first key, remembering your accountability. The second key to a faithful ministry involves preaching the word. Look at verse two. Paul writes, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. What kind of ministry is that which pleases the Lord? The kind in which his word is faithfully taught and faithfully proclaimed. Listen, if a ministry is going to be all that God wants it to be, then the truth of scripture must be at the center of it. Why is that? Because the word of God is the primary agent which brings about change in a person's life. Listen, only the Bible can produce the kind of depth of maturity that God is looking for in his people. Only the Bible. In fact, in John 17, 17, we see that when Jesus prayed this to the Father, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Listen, it's the word that sanctifies it's the word that works to mature us and to conform us and to complete us into the image of God's son or to conform us into the image of God's son. Back in chapter three and verse 16 of this particular book, Paul wrote this in verse 16. He says, all scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. We could do a whole sermon on that, couldn't we? All of scripture from beginning to end, the whole counsel of God is given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos, it's the very breath of God. That book you brought with you this morning, it's not just the product of the work of men, it's the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable, Paul writes. It is valuable, it is sufficient for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped 
for every good work. Listen, that's what the word of God is capable of doing. When it is faithfully taught, the word has the potential to equip believers for righteous living and faithful service unto our Lord. And you know, you would think with that sort of capacity or with that sort of capability, it would just be a given that most evangelical churches would do just that, that they would preach the word. But you want to know what the sad reality is? That not many churches do that very thing. Not many churches do that. And I don't say that with sort of an error. I don't say that as sort of a better than thou attitude as as if we at Grace have sort of the edge on the truth. Not at all. I say it with a broken heart. In fact, I remember I was visiting with a friend earlier this week and we had a conversation. He he attends a a different church in a different state and he he basically told me this. He said, John, we go to a church every Sunday where basically everyone brings their Bibles, but we're not taught the word. The pastor even uses the Bible when he stands up to preach, but we're not taught the word of God. You know, the tragedy behind that story is that there are many other individuals who could testify of the exact same thing in their own lives. Listen, even though the Bible is sufficient to transform lives, even though the Bible is sufficient to equip the body for spiritual service, there are many churches and many pastors throughout our nation who just settle for something far less. In fact, allow me to give you just a a, a sampling of the type of alternative preaching styles that are out there today in contrast to biblical preaching, just simply preaching the Bible. I'll just give you three of them. There's, There's more than that, but let me just give you a few ideas or a few alternatives that are popular today. The first is what I'll call feel-good preaching. All right, feel-good preaching. This is the method which says that anything offensive or anything confrontive must be removed from the pulpit. Only positive messages, only sermons that promise happiness or wealth or success or the fulfillment of all your dreams are acceptable in a church context. Of course, the issue that most often drives that philosophy of ministry, that approach to preaching is the desire to attract more people, to boost church attendance, to become more acceptable to the culture at large. Now listen, I don't know of any single leader at our church that is opposed to those things. In other words, I I can't think of any single leader at our church that is opposed to our church growing, that is opposed to us reaching the masses of people in our community. Listen, we are all for that completely. But I think I could speak for all the leaders that our goal is to never do that at the expense of the word of God. Never. You see, the issue that matters most in ministry isn't numbers. It's faithfulness. God calls us to preach the word and leave the results to him. God calls us to take care of the depth of our ministry and let God take care of the breadth of it. Success in ministry isn't necessarily determined by numbers. It's determined by how committed an individual is or how committed a ministry is to being faithful to the word of God. You know, I was reminded of that this past week as I was reading in the book of Jeremiah. Let's let's turn back to Jeremiah chapter five, if you would. Second Timothy chapter four, all the way back to the Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter five. Let me remind you, the book of Jeremiah was God's warning to his people of coming judgment. God, of course, by this time had already wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel as a result of her disobedience, as a result of her rebellion against God. And, and, and basically God's message to the southern kingdom of Judah 
through his prophet Jeremiah was basically this. Hey, you're next. You're next. Northern kingdom of Israel wiped out because of her disobedience. Because you've continued on down the same path, you're next. The question that comes to mind is why? Well, there are many reasons. You can read the whole book of Jeremiah and there's several reasons, but we even get a glimpse of it here in chapter five where the Lord through his prophet Jeremiah says in verse 30, Jeremiah chapter five, verse 30, the Lord says this. He says, an astounding and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets, they prophesy falsely. The priests, they rule by their own authority or by their own power. And notice what he says in the very next phrase. And my people love to have it so. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Evidently, the false prophets had become quite popular among the people of God. They attracted large crowds. They gained quite a following. But that didn't mean the Lord was pleased. In fact, if you look at the text, the Lord was sickened by the whole situation because it reflected the horrible spiritual state of his people. So all that to say, listen, popularity isn't the key issue when it comes to ministry. Numbers isn't necessarily a sign that a ministry is doing well or a sign that that a ministry is pleasing in the sight of God. The key issue, the key issue is faithfulness. Unfortunately, that's something that's sacrificed under the umbrella of feel-good preaching. You can go back to 2 Timothy 4. Back to 2 Timothy 4, a second alternative. So one alternative to biblical preaching is feel-good preaching. A second alternative to biblical preaching is springboard preaching. Springboard preaching. This is where a biblical text is used as nothing more than a launching point for the pastor to preach whatever topic is on his heart. In this particular method, the pastor's opinion is the reigning factor. The word of God is subject to his thoughts rather than the other way around. You know, I was reminded of this particular method about five or six years ago when I happened to watch part of a sermon by a popular preacher on television. And at the beginning of his sermon, he asked the congregation to hold up their Bibles and recite the following statement. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess that my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, and I'll never be the same again. And then they put down their Bibles in their laps and went on with the sermon. You know, when I first heard that statement, I thought, wow, that's a great way to express an eagerness to receive the word. That's a a great affirmation of of the testimony of scripture, its sufficiency to change lives and, 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 and to move and work in a person's life and a person to express his eagerness to receive the word. But you want to know what's sad? That was about as deep as the sermon ever got. Why is that? Because after holding up the Bible and making that statement, the scripture was rarely ever referred to again. You say, well, John, how common is that? The answer is very common. As Haddon Robinson once pointed out, he said, quote, in many sermons, the biblical passage read to the congregation resembles the national anthem played at a baseball game. It gets things started, but it's never heard or referred to again. You know, that's the nature of springboard preaching. And like the previous one, when it's used, when it's applied, it leaves individuals dry and hungry and in search for something more. 
A third alternative, and this is just the last one, there's several more, but a third alternative to biblical preaching is emergent style preaching. E-M-E-R-G-E-N-T, emergent style preaching. The reason I refer to it as emergent style preaching is because it's connected to the emergent movement that has become so popular in evangelical circles today. This particular method of preaching has more to do with leading a group discussion than it does teaching through a particular text. And the idea is rather than come and hear the word of God taught, there's sort of an open mic where every person in the audience, believer or unbeliever, can contribute to the discussion, can contribute to the conversation. And while this particular method sort of champions selflessness or, or humility because the philosophy is, hey, no one man should get up and, and preach the word. Everybody should have a voice, believer, unbeliever, whoever. If they're walking with God, they're not, no, not a big deal. They, everybody should have a voice. It actually undermines God's plan for the church where qualified men are supposed to lead, shepherd, and teach the word of God. And so emergent preaching, like all other alternatives, falls woefully short of God's prescribed manner of biblical preaching, of biblical exposition. You see, the best way a pastor can feed his flock is by simply preaching the word. The best way he can lead is by teaching them what God's word says so that they can live in the manner that God desires. But sadly, so many churches don't go that way. I can't help but think that's the reason why John Stott said years ago, there are many popular preachers today, but not very many powerful ones. There are many popular preachers because there are so many who just teach what people want to hear, say what people want to hear. But there are not many powerful ones because they fail to teach the word of God, the all-sufficient word of God, which has the power to transform lives. And that's why Paul, in verse 2, exhorts Timothy to preach the word. He says, Timothy, make sure at the very center of your philosophy of ministry is teaching the word. Make sure at the very top of your priority list in ministry is preaching the word. There's absolutely no substitute for it. As Gary Gilley once said, congregations which focus on techniques and programs and entertainment at the expense of the centrality of the word, they may build large followings, but they will not build the church of God. Programs, drama, and entertainment may amuse and soothe and inspire and stir the emotions, but they will not build Christians because only the word of God can do that. And that's why Paul exhorts Timothy here in verse 2 to preach the word. And how was he to do that? How was he to preach the word? Well, verse 2 tells us he was to be ready in season and out of season. He was to be ready. The term ready, by the way, uh, uh, carries the idea of willingness or preparedness, or eagerness. Listen, Timothy was to have a, an explosive eagerness to preach the word regardless of the spiritual climate, in season, out of season, whether it was popular or not. It didn't matter if the, the truth was culturally acceptable or not. Timothy had a responsibility to preach the word at all times and in all circumstances. In addition, Paul told Timothy to convince, to rebuke, to exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. What does that mean? Well, the terms convince and rebuke highlight the negative side of preaching the word of God. Not negative in the sense of bad, but, but negative in the sense of its, its corrective impact or corrective effect. You see, if the word of God is taught well, then it should produce conviction in the hearts of the listeners. There should be moments of discomfort in a believer's life as sin is being revealed and wrong attitudes are being exposed. Furthermore, Paul tells us preaching should have the elements of 
exhortation and teaching. When the corporate body is gathered together, believers should be exhorted to live righteously before God and instructed or taught in the ways of the Lord. And it all should be done with a spirit of long suffering. All should be done in a spirit of patience. In other words, never is the word to be ministered in a harsh manner. Never is the word of God to be ministered in, in an abrasive manner, whether in a corporate setting such as this or even on an individual level. Never is that appropriate. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, we're to speak the truth and we're to speak it in love. And so the second key to a faithful ministry is preaching the word. Paul told Timothy, listen, Timothy, things are hard. Times are hard. Don't shrink back. Make sure you boldly and courageously and patiently proclaim the word of God. A third key to a faithful ministry involves a refusal to compromise. Number three, a refusal to compromise. Look at verse three. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes this. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What is Paul saying here? Well, the issue Paul's addressing here is preaching in the Word of God, or preaching in a context, rather, in which the Word of God is not very popular. Or preaching in a context in which sound doctrine is not tolerated. Paul says there's coming a day when people will no longer endure the sound teaching of the word of God. And can I just say, beloved, we are right there today. That's, that's us as a culture. By and large, we live in a culture that likes to have its ears tickled. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Most people in our society today don't want conviction they want to be entertained. Most people today don't want to hear about sin. They want to be affirmed. Most people don't want to hear about God's divine judgment. They want to be reassured. Most people don't want to be told that the Christian life is often a path of difficulty. It's often a path of hardship, adversity. They would rather be told that their best life is now. Listen, that's the kind of climate in which we live today. And that's the kind of climate Paul warned Timothy about here in these verses. Paul basically told him, Timothy, there's coming a day when the preaching of the word will not be very popular. And when that day comes, don't compromise your message. Don't alter your message. Don't alter your method just to make people feel comfortable. By the way, do you think that ever happens? Do you think there are churches that ever adjust their message or their method just to acquiesce to the culture around them? Sadly, it happens all the time. Just the other day, I read about a well-known preacher whose entire ministry is based on positive preaching. He mentioned in an interview that he tries to avoid talking about topics like sin because people are already weighed down with too much guilt. When the interviewer asked him, hey, how, could you, how do you justify your position? He replied by saying that he wanted to help pe people or, or, or to help meet people's real needs rather than deal with issues like sin and, and other issues similar to that. You know, I found that interesting, especially given the fact that the greatest need a person has is to be delivered from his sin. But you know, that's, that's not uncommon. There are many churches throughout our country, sadly, even in our own valley, that refuse, for example, to address the topic of sin or refuse to address the issue of homosexuality or refuse to address the issue of creation or refuse to address the issue of a woman's role in the home or a woman's role in the church 
or when they do address those topics, they adjust what the Bible says so it comes across as acceptable or it comes across as non-offensive. Listen, that's exactly the type of thing Paul was warning about here in these verses. More than anything, Paul wanted Timothy to have a ministry that was marked by faithfulness. And a faithful ministry is one that refuses to compromise in a culture where the word of God is not popular. And so a third key to a faithful ministry involves a refusal to compromise. And that not only comes from up here, it just, that's important for the body at large, isn't it? And that's becoming more and more tough, isn't it? In a, a culture in which we live in, that's more and more going the other direction. All the more we need to resolve in our hearts to not compromise, to do it lovingly, to do it in a humble manner, but to never, ever compromise the word of God. A fourth key to a faithful ministry involves striving for steadiness. Striving for steadiness. Look at verse five. Paul writes this. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things. Be watchful. The term watchful could also be translated sober-minded or self-controlled. It describes someone who is solid. It describes someone who is stable or steady in his walk with God. This kind of person is not given to change. It's not given to extremes. It's not someone who tries to be trendy. Instead, this is someone who is solid and consistent and unwavering in his walk with God. He knows what the Lord has called him to do, and he stays fixed on that course, always seeking to please the Lord, always seeking to be faithful to the Lord. You know, as I was studying this quality the other day, I couldn't help but think of our own senior pastor, Brian Hughes. I really can't think of a quality that maybe better describes his ministry than this quality right here. In fact, I were thinking, if someone were to ask me, just say, hey, how would, you, how would you characterize Brian Hughes? If you were to describe him, how would you describe him? I would probably say this. He's humble, he loves the Lord, and he's just steady in his walk with God. He's not flashy. He doesn't try to be humorous, although he can be funny. Doesn't go after trends. Doesn't try to be someone he's not. He just consistently preaches the word of God, and he loves the people here at Grace. You know, that's something I aspire to. There's just something unique about the quality of steadiness that that brings about a stability in one's own life and a level of comfort and safety to the people you're ministering to. And so a fourth key to a faithful ministry involves striving for steadiness, being somebody who's stable, being somebody who's steady, not given to extremes, not trying to be someone you're not, just going about your walk with God, seeking to be faithful to him. A fifth key to a faithful ministry involves enduring afflictions. Enduring afflictions. Look at verse five again. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things and endure afflictions. Here Paul reminds Timothy that there are certain things that come with a territory of ministering to people. Not just, not just on a pastoral level. This, this is any level of ministry. And you know this if, you serve, if you're serving or in some element or some aspect of ministry. That, that there are certain things that come with the territory of ministry, and one of them is just difficulty. One of them is hardship. If you give your life to serving others, at some point, you'll experience hardship and adversity along the way. It may come in the form of disappointment. It may come in the form of rejection. It may come in the form of people being opposed to your ministry or opposed to your message, whether it's friends or people in the body or maybe even unsaved family members, neighbors. It may come in the form of false accusations or slander. It may come in the form of 
seeing people you've poured your life into eventually turn the other direction and walk the other way. You know, we know that happened at least once in Paul's ministry. Look at verse 9 of just the same chapter. Paul writes to Timothy, Be diligent to come to me quickly, Timothy, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know, the point I'm trying to make is this, is that afflictions and faithfulness often go hand in hand. And so Paul, in a sense, says, Timothy, don't be surprised by that. When you experience hardship in ministry, make sure you don't throw in the towel. When you walk through difficult seasons of life, make sure you do your best to endure. The question is, how do we endure hardship in ministry? How do we endure hardship in life itself? Well, Paul doesn't explain that here, but we are given a hint or, or an idea of that over in a couple letters to the right. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. By the way, who is that? The cloud of witnesses is, is the group of believers, the men and women of faith described in chapter 11. These were, were men and women who the author of Hebrews sorts of, sort of lines up on a stage and says, look at their life. They endured a lot of difficulty. Therefore, you can too. So he's, he's, he's pointing back to this group of believers who endured hardship as recorded in the Old Testament. And so he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us. And the question that comes to mind is how can we do that? How can we run the Christian race with endurance? How can we run the Christian race without wavering, without getting sidetracked? Verse two, by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the way we endure in the Christian life is not merely by doing more or trying harder. The way that we endure in the Christian life is by keeping our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and by seeking to be faithful to him. Listen, only then, only then, only when we do that will we find the strength to keep pressing forward. And only then will we be able to find the courage and find the resolve to never give up. Now back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and... <clears throat> Let me say this, there are a few things that mark a life of faithfulness than a person who walks through hardship and endures. And life is hard at times, isn't it, beloved? Life can be very hard at times. There are some seasons of life that are especially challenging. There, there are some seasons of life that are just especially difficult to walk through. And so in those moments, we need to remember that one of the godliest things we can do in moments of hardship is just put one foot in front of the next and endure. Does that make sense? In other words, one of the most godliest things that we can do when we're walking through a tough season of life is just to put one foot in front of the next and look to the Lord to give us strength to live life in a way that's pleasing to him. So a fifth key to a faithful ministry is enduring hardship, enduring afflictions. 
Number six, a sixth key to a faithful ministry involves proclaiming the gospel. Look at verse five again. Paul writes, but you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. The question that comes to mind is, what is the work of an evangelist? Well, the answer is fairly simple. It involves proclaiming the gospel and sharing the good news. Listen, as a pastor, Timothy's primary role was to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip believers for spiritual service. However, while engaging in that work, Timothy was to always be mindful of ways in which his ministry can impact unsafe people. He was to always be mindful of opportunities in which he could share the good news with unbelievers. You know, I can't help but think that the reason Paul encouraged Timothy along those lines is because isn't it true that it's just easy for any one of us as Christians to lose sight of that on our radar? What I mean is it's so easy for us as Christians to sort of get tunnel vision and only, for example, to focus on our relationships with believers that we lose sight of opportunities to share Christ with those who are not believers. I mean, just think about your own life for a moment. How many times just this last week did you think to pray for an unbeliever? How many times this past week did you look for an opportunity to talk about Christ with an unbeliever? Whether it was an unbelieving friend or an unbelieving coworker, unbelieving classmate, unbelieving teammate, unbelieving neighbor. Even if you can't think back to a scenario where you did do that this past week, isn't it tragic how we can go days or weeks or even months without having that on our radar? We can get so wrapped up in our jobs. We can get so wrapped up into our homes or our projects or our hobbies or our own circle of friends that we lose sight of opportunities to share Christ with those who don't know him. Listen, even pastors, even shepherds, even ministry leaders are susceptible to that very thing. And that's why Paul reminded Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. He told him, Timothy, as you go about doing ministry, don't forget about the unsaved. Don't forget about the unredeemed. Look for opportunities to share Christ and to magnify the cross and to talk about sin and to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is the only path to salvation. As you go about doing ministry, Timothy, don't ever lose sight of that priority. You see, one of the keys to a faithful ministry is a ministry that is centered on the gospel. You know, that's the type of ministry that Paul wanted Timothy to have. He wanted him to be faithful, to hold forth the the gospel of Jesus Christ in his ministry. And he wanted him to be faithful to do the work of an evangelist. And so a sixth key to doing ministry is proclaiming the gospel, being faithful to be mindful of opportunities around us and to pray for those opportunities and to take them as we have opportunity to share Christ with those who don't know him. And number seven, lastly, is this. Paul writes, fulfill your ministry. Look at verse five. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. The idea behind this phrase, fulfill your ministry, is basically this. What Paul's basically saying is this. As you go about life and serving the Lord, fulfill your duty and give your very best. Why? Because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, deserves nothing less. He deserves nothing less. I mean, just think about it for a moment. If you're, if you're a Christian, think about all that the Lord has done for you. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. 
And in the process of time, he gave you just the right set of circumstances as a means to drawing you to himself. But that's not all. Because that salvation, he forgave you. He gave you eyes to see and faith to believe and a new heart that longs for the things that pleases him. But that's still not all. Because now that you're a Christian, he's always working to sanctify you, constantly interceding for you. And one day he will reward you for your faithfulness to him while living on this earth. Do you notice any half-heartedness in the Lord's commitment to his people? None whatsoever. Absolutely not. Therefore, the least that we can do is to give our best to him in return. That's what Paul did. Look at verse six. Paul writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, that's the kind of thing that Paul wanted Timothy to be able to say at the end of his life. He wanted Timothy to be able to look over the course of his life with joy, knowing that he gave his very best, just like Paul had. He wanted Timothy to be able to look over the course of his life and ministry without any regrets. But Paul understood that the only way he would be able to do that, the only way that would be possible is for Timothy to recall his accountability, to preach the word, to refuse to compromise, to strive for steadiness, to endure afflictions, to proclaim the gospel, to fulfill his ministry to the very end of his life. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper told of a story about a little plaque that hung in his home while growing up as a child. He said it hung in the kitchen where he would see it every day as a young boy. He'd walk, wake up in the morning, go and have breakfast as a little boy and see that plaque on the wall and eat breakfast, go to school, come home, eat dinner, see it on the wall, go to bed each day. That particular plaque contained such a simple statement, but it had a profound impact in his life. Years later, it was given to him by his parents and now it hangs in his own living room. And it reads this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's a great reminder, isn't it? Great reminder. In the grand scheme of things, life is pretty short, isn't it? And the issue that will matter the most when it's all said and done is this. Were we faithful? Were we faithful? Were we faithful to serve? Were we faithful to give? Were we faithful to be stretched, to to be used by God? Were Were we faithful to our families? Were we faithful to the word of God? Were we faithful to the Lord? Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Would you pray with me? And Father, our prayer is that you would remind us on a regular basis that life is but a breath. As James said in his epistle, life is, life is but a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And Father, in light of that reality, I pray that you would do as the psalmist said in Psalm 90, to, to teach us to number our days and teach us to be faithful. Because the truth is only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ is all that will really last. 
That's the one thing that will matter. That's the one thing that will count. And Father, for those who are here this morning who have yet to submit their lives to Christ, I pray that you would help them to get an accurate picture of their sinful condition so that they can see clearly their need for a Savior. Maybe up to this point, they've been putting their trust in religion. Maybe up to this point, they've been putting their trust in morality or good works. Whatever the case, help them to see that all those things are empty and that salvation comes only through knowing you. Father, we love you and we thank you for the preciousness of your word and may we always cherish it. May we be faithful to read it, to study it, to obey it on our own and may we be faithful to the very end. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.